0: Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning is the last part of Mark chapter 16, verses nine through 20. So let's begin by reading this together, okay? Mark says, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it won't hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So let's just begin by acknowledging the elephant in the room, as it were, and and that's this, verses 9 through 20 do not belong with the rest of Mark's gospel. Your Bible probably has these words italicized and maybe even a parenthetical statement above verse 9 saying that the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses don't have these verses. And so you wonder, what's going on? Last week we talked about this, um, but we need to just touch on it again, I think because it's really important. You know, many scholars believe that Mark ended his gospel at verse 8, or perhaps that he had another ending, but somehow that ending got lost over time. And you say, well, how could that possibly happen? Well, these documents were written on very primitive and fragile types of paper. Then they were stored in clay jars over the years That region of the world has seen more than its share of turmoil and turnover. So, and you think about it, it's actually a miracle that any of it has survived, really. Um, We can thank God that we have what we have, in a sense. So you say, well, who wrote verses 9 through 20? Well, we don't know. But we do know this. We have a record of verses 9 through 20 being included with Mark's gospel, as early on as the middle of the second century, we have record of two of the early church fathers, one of them named Irenaeus, the other one named Tatian, both of whom referenced verses nine through twenty, you know, in in their version of the Gospel of Mark. So that tells us this: that that what we have has been around for almost 2,100 years. I mean, this is not a new idea that, you know, verses 9 through 20 weren't just added 10 years ago, somebody thought was a great concept. This has been with the gospel of Mark since really very near the beginning. And you say, well, so can we trust it? And the answer is yes, unequivocally we can trust it. Not only have they been a part of Mark for a very long time, since almost the beginning, But the truth is, they don't contain any new material that you can't also find in the other three Gospels or in the book of Acts. So it's not like, you know, these verses contain some bombshell revelation that uh, has never been heard before. Like, so we see that there's other portions of Scripture that attest to it. And I would say, if you're curious to know, like, where these verses line up with other portions of the Gospels and Acts, I would encourage you to read the journal that we gave out 14 weeks ago, um, chapter 12. It's actually in there. I lay out some of the different references so that you can see it. And um, I think it's actually written much better than I'll be able to preach it. So I would encourage you to read it. Um, But let's just take what we're going to do this morning is let's take the same approach to these verses that we did last week to the first eight verses of chapter 16, okay? And that's this. First of all, we have what God wants us to have. Amen? This is the inspired, inerrant word of God and God is speaking to us today through it. He has a word for you and me through these verses. And so that's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing is we're going to approach this as though Mark himself wrote it and Mark planned on this being the end of his gospel. And I think when we see it this way, we will discover something really beautiful emerge from it, okay? First of all, notice this. Mary Magdalene is the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead. Do you see that in verse 9? Mary Magdalene actually plays a very prominent role at the end of Mark. She's mentioned four times. So she's almost she's really more prominent than the 11 disciples as we come to the end of Mark's gospel. And you say, well, why? What's, what's going on there? Mark tells us that this Mary, Mary Magdalene, is the one whom Jesus had removed seven demons from. Now, many people have speculated why Jesus would have appeared first to Mary. I mean, if you think about it, let's just put yourself in God's shoes for a moment. Let's, let's say that you're God and you have just done what God did. You've come to earth as a man, you've walked the planet. You were crucified, dead, and now you're risen again. Who would be the first person that you would show that to? Would it be Mary? I don't think she would be the first person I would show it to. I think I would go to Caesar if I was God. Caesar, after all, is the most powerful person on the planet at that time. Caesar is, with, without doubt, you know, the most influential person. And so I think I would show up in Caesar's living room, hit him upside the head, and said, hey, pal, you better tell the whole world about this to make sure that the whole message, that the message gets out to the whole world, see? I think I might do that. Or at the very least, I would go to the 11 disciples. I mean, after all, they are the disciples, aren't they? So I think I'd maybe go to them. But Mary, Jesus goes to Mary first, um, instead, he goes to this woman who at one time was severely demonized, who had a checkered past, but whom he had redeemed beautifully. I think the reason why Jesus first appeared to Mary is simply because she loved him. I don't mean romantically at all. She loved him as a person. And, um, we know that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved But of all the disciples and all the followers that Jesus had, it was Mary who stuck the closest to him. It's like she's always there, always in the shadows. She's not part of the 12 disciples. She's not part of that inner circle, but she's always there. And who was the one that took Jesus' body all the way to the tomb to bury it? Mary. And who's the one who was at the cross? Mary. And who's the one who comes now in chapter 16, as it opens, and she's coming to anoint the body of Jesus with spices, marry him. She's always there. And so I think that there's, she holds this kind of this special place. In, in the Gospel of Luke, we read, he tells the story of this, quote, sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her tears, and she dried them with her hair. And many people think that that sinful woman was Mary Magdalene. And Jesus said of her in Luke 7, 47, he said, because her many sins have been forgiven, she loved much. That's the next slide there, Zach. Because her many sins were forgiven, she loved much. See, her own love, see, our love for Jesus is directly connected to our experience of freedom. I mean, Jesus said, if you've been forgiven much, you love much. So my understanding of what I've been forgiven actually helps to fuel my love for Jesus. Our own love for Jesus is directly connected to that. See, one of the reasons why so many people, so many church people, lack passion for Christ is because we think that we're good people who follow Jesus. We've actually forgotten how broken our lives were. We've forgotten that at one point, we were damned to hell, and Jesus rescued us. Like, you and I were every bit as bad as Mary Magdalene. You know, you and I were in every bit as tough straits as Mary Magdalene. And I believe Mary never forgot the pit out of which Jesus had rescued her, and she loved him for it with all of her heart. So when Jesus rises from the dead, the first person he wants to see is Mary. Now, I don't know. That's just my idea, and you can question it, and it could be a fun discussion. Why would Jesus show up to Mary first? But Mark tells us that in verse 9. But notice from here, verses 11 through 15 take a different turn. They emphasize unbelief, disbelief which in itself tells you that Mark is telling us the truth. Because think about what a downer it is. I mean, if Jesus has risen from the dead, his closest followers don't even believe it? See, if Mark was making this up, he would not portray it that way. He would... Portray it as you and I would portray it. All the followers of Jesus, they saw the resurrection of Jesus and they became powerful evangelists and they spread the word around the world. Not they doubted it, they questioned it, they were skeptical, and yet that's exactly what's happened, see. So Mark is clearly not trying to manipulate you and me into believing something. He's telling us this is how it actually happened. The disciples didn't believe it. In verse 10, Mary goes to tell the disciples that she saw Jesus risen from the dead. In verse 11, they did not believe it. And then in verse, and then a little while later, Jesus appears to two other disciples who are walking on a road. In Luke's gospel, Luke expands on this story in Luke chapter 24, and he's, he says that these two disciples are on the road to Emmaus, a small town named Emmaus, and they end up having dinner with Jesus, and they, their eyes are open, and they see Jesus for who he is. And They're blown away, and they run back and tell the other disciples. And Mark tells us in verse 13 that when these two men come back and tell the other disciples, they didn't believe them either. And then verse 14 tells us that Jesus later appears to the 11 disciples while they were eating, and Mark uses some very strong language to tell us what Jesus said to these men. Mark tells us that Jesus, quote, rebuked them for their stubborn refusal to believe their stubborn refusal you know mark is writing his gospel in the greek language that's the language that he spoke and wrote in and in the greek language those words are very strong words as if as if jesus is giving these men a you know a real talking to it's a tongue lashing he rebukes them for not for their stubborn refusal to believe but then after seeing jesus with their own eyes well they they do believe and verse 20 says that you can see how it ends they went out and they start preaching everywhere and signs and miracles are happening to accompany the preaching of the word and you say wow what made the difference Well, there's a couple of things that we can grab from this. The first is this. It's evidence that Jesus truly rose from the dead. You and I can take this as really good evidence. Why? Because his closest disciples were skeptical and they were stubbornly resistant towards the news of his resurrection. His closest disciples, closest followers, were stubbornly refusing to believe the truth that he had risen from the dead. And then... They become powerful messengers, telling everybody that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, what happened in between? What what made the difference? They saw Jesus risen from the dead. See? Nobody goes from, you know, ultra-skeptical to mega-preacher just by deciding to do that. These men obviously had some kind of experience in between that changed their mind, and that experience was they saw Jesus, and it changed them. So the first thing we can grab out of this is, this is pretty good evidence that it's true. The second thing we can take from this is this, your faith is greater than their faith. And that's encouraging for us. Because you think about it, they needed to see Jesus with their own eyes before they would believe it. They needed to put their fingers in the side of Jesus. They, they needed to have breakfast with him on a beach by the sea of galilee they they needed to experience the resurrection the resurrected jesus they needed to experience that tangibly before they could believe it you however have placed your entire faith on the written testimony of what other people have said that makes your faith actually stronger than their faith and Jesus actually rebuked them because you can't, just, you can't believe this because you've heard it. Like you have to see it with your own eyes. See? But Jesus wouldn't rebuke you for that because you've placed your faith on what you've heard. So your faith is greater than theirs. And this is encouraging For you and me. The Apostle Peter acknowledged this actually in First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I, I love this little verse. I memorized it years ago. But in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is writing to persecuted Christians. And these Christians are being killed for their faith. And he is encouraging them. And he is amazed at the power of their faith. And Peter says this to them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, Though you have not seen him, that's reference to Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, you can almost picture Peter writing these words. I can, my active imagination. Peter writing these words, remembering back to when Jesus first rose from the dead. And Peter's realizing, you know, I I couldn't do what you guys are doing. I needed to see him risen from the dead. You, you have not seen him but yet you believe in him. Wow. See, he's praising them for their faith. And as a result of their faith and what they've heard, they're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, and they're receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. So that makes your faith stronger than Peter's, which is encouraging. Something else is going on after rebuking them for their lack of faith. Jesus gives the disciples a mission in verse 25. In verse 15, there's no verse 25. In verse 15, Jesus gives the disciples a mission. You see what he says to them in verse 15? Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. That seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, would you take a group of people who were skeptical and doubtful and then tell them to start telling everybody about it? I know I wouldn't, and yet that's exactly what Jesus just did. He's just rebuked them for not believing, and then he says, hey, now go out and tell everybody. See, what's Jesus doing? It seems counterintuitive, but actually what Jesus is doing is helping to strengthen their faith. You see, the answer to doubt is not asking more questions or studying harder. The antidote to doubt is taking what you know and building upon that. You, you, don't, you don't remove doubt by feeding doubt. You remove doubt by taking what you know to be true, and you start there, and you build from that. See, it's the best way that I can illustrate it is with marriage. And If you're single, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was thinking through the best way I could illustrate this thing, but marriage is, is the best I could come up with. You know, no couple, when they get married, when a couple gets married, they're not obsessing about all the things they don't know about the other person. If if a couple obsessed about all the things they did not know about their partner, they would never get married. I think about like what happened when Karis and I got married. We were 22 years old. We were young when we got married. And you know, we were like everybody else, the rose-colored glasses were very thick and we just thought that we were soulmates and we know each other so well. I mean, we talk all the time and you know how you know, that's how young couples talk. And uh, we just talk all the time and we're just perfectly we're just made for each other, you know. And that's that's how we were, right? And we get married and But now I look back on that, I realize we didn't know hardly anything about each other. It's, it's it really, we knew so little. And I wonder if Karis had only known about all the ways that I would disappoint her in 34 years, if she had only known about all the ways I would let her down, if she only knew about how judgmental I can be at times and how moody I can be sometimes and how, right, how controlling I can be sometimes. Like, if she'd only known all that, she would have run. She would have never married me. See? I, I, I caught her in a weak moment. That's what I did. That's exactly what happened. But I'm, my point is simply this. In marriage, you don't focus on all the things that you don't know. You take what you do know about this person. And what I do know, I love. And I can build from that. See? And this is the solution for doubt in our relationship with Jesus. Listen, you will never have All of your questions answered about Jesus he's infinite that means there will always be something you don't know he's infinite can you even wrap your mind around that concept see and you're finite so it's absolutely impossible to think that you will have all of your questions answered and all of your doubts you know addressed before you place your faith in Jesus no what we do is we begin with what we know about Jesus I start there and I build upon that. And as I as I stay with him over the years, I learn more and more and more and more. And the more that I learn, the more that I love. And I the more that I love, the more that I trust because he's just amazing. But I don't, you know, I didn't know 40 some years ago all that I know about Jesus now. I just simply knew enough to know that I could trust him. And I did. And this is how you address doubt. Does this make sense? See, the disciples were in the same boat. They, they started with what they knew. They didn't have um, formal theology. They didn't have carefully crafted doctrinal statements and creeds. And, you know, they didn't have all of that. They didn't even, you know, they didn't even have the New Testament, right? All they knew was these men knew that Jesus died. We saw him dead. And now he's living. We see him living. And that's where they began. And here you and I are 2,000 years later as they told people and they told people and they told people and they told people and here we are talking about it. See, it was that simple. And Jesus says this, he promises, that then power will follow your belief. And that's what we see in this next paragraph between verses 15 and 18. Power follows belief. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, many people read this verse like it's a math equation. They read it saying belief plus baptism equals salvation. And that's not true. What Jesus is saying is that baptism follows belief. That that belief looks like something. That when a person believes, they naturally follow up with that belief in obedience to what Christ has said. And the first step in obedience is baptism. You see, our lifestyle reflects our beliefs. I always live what I believe. See, here's the deal. You don't get you do not need to get baptized. Let me be clear. You do not need to be baptized in order to get saved. But saved people get baptized. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, unless, of course, I'm on my deathbed and I don't have the opportunity to do that. But you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to, I don't know about you, I don't want to show up to heaven someday, you know, at the judgment seat. And God's like, you know, I asked you to get baptized. don't. Um, How'd that go? Oh, God, I never made the time. Whoo, just so busy. You know? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's a pretty straightforward, simple thing he's commanded me to do, and belief always has actions attached to it. Belief's never just a theory. It's always practical. And so I place my belief in Jesus, and the very next step is baptism. And that's what he's saying. See, save people gladly get baptized, publicly profess their love for Jesus in the waters of baptism. And Jesus says then, the power that follows when someone believes in Jesus for salvation is baptism and salvation. Power follows belief. And then in verse 17, Jesus says, these signs will accompany those who believe. And this is kind of a tricky portion of the Bible. A lot of people read these verses or maybe even skip over these verses because they're uncomfortable, but let's just not do that today. Let's talk about it for a second. Then Jesus lists a few of the things, a few of the powerful signs that happen when people believe. Now, we need to understand this is not a complete list. Jesus is not saying, If you believe, well, then these three things will definitely happen. That's not what he said. These are a sampling of the kinds of powerful things that happen in the lives of those who believe. So let's be clear. Jesus is not telling you to prove your faith by playing with snakes. He's he's not telling you to prove your faith by drinking poison. So look at the coffee's safe to drink today. I promise you don't have to worry about that. You can have a drink, although I think it's out, so you're out of luck anyway. But you know what I mean? So he's not saying that you prove your faith by these things. He's saying that people of faith experience things like this, you see. A person who believes, a person who walks in faith will live a life of power. That's what Jesus is saying. And it looks like some of these things. And we have record, Acts chapter 28, the Apostle Paul was uh, gathering a bunch of sticks for a fire, and a viper came out of the sticks and bit him in the forearm. Paul survived it. It's not to say that that's an example for what you and I are supposed to do. We're not supposed to go out and play with snakes. He's just saying people that live a life of faith will also live a life of power right but make no mistake let's be clear the life of faith is not an easy life it's not nor is it safe and nor is it comfortable this is not the life of faith it will stretch you challenge you maybe even kill you but at the end of the day you will have some battle scars and one heck of a story to tell. That's the life of faith. And I bet if we could take the time, many of you could tell your stories here, and you could say, yes, I have seen God work. That's part of the joy, isn't it, of our annual Thanksgiving service as a church? Like, we love hearing the stories of the faith stories, you know? I was in this tight spot, and God came through. I was sick here, and God healed me. I you know, I had this trouble and God broke through. We 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 all can probably attest to stories like that. This is what happens in the life of faith. In the life of faith, we we have these troubling things that happen and Jesus rescues us, and we see miracles, we see breakthroughs, we see God's power at work in our lives in a life of faith. This is what Jesus is telling us, you see? So here's the thing. There's one thing certain about a life of faith. It will not be boring. It will be filled with meaning and purpose. You will not need to cut yourself in order to feel something. You will not need to get drunk in order to escape something. You will not need to watch movies to entertain yourself or play video games for hours on end to experience entertainment. No, you'll be living the movie, and it'll be real. See, that's the promise that Jesus makes to us. But make no mistake, the life of faith is not easy. He promises that if we will embrace the power of his resurrection and fully embrace it, fully believe it, fully own it with our whole selves, that you and I will live a life of power. And it won't be an easy one, but it will be a full one. How do we know? Well, that's how Mark ends in verses 19 and 20. Mark's gospel ends with the ascension of Jesus. He goes back to heaven. And the disciples do what? They take off. And they start spreading the word everywhere. And signs and miracles accompany them. Jesus works with them and confirms his word by signs and miracles. See? And this, my friend, is you and me. This is us. You want to live a life of faith? Get moving. Get moving. You see, my prayer for us this morning has been this, that believing in Jesus would stop being a concept and actually become the way I live. Does that make sense? For many of us, belief in Jesus is a concept. I mean, I'm a Christian, so I believe in Jesus,. Yeah. I, you know I was thinking about that this morning as we were singing together um, of the birth of Christ, you know. I, I bet all of us believe that Jesus was born and laid in a manger. No, I, I don't think anybody here probably questions that. and and I'm guessing all of us also believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you would say, oh, yes, I do. Yes, yes, yes. But do you? Because if I believe something, I talk about it, if I believe something, it changes the way I live. See? If If it doesn't impact my daily life, then I don't truly believe it. That's the way that belief works. Belief is not a, an idea. Belief is actually practical. It's a verb. It changes how I live. And if we're the people of God who, who are walking in the power of the resurrection, well, that is going to look like something in our lives, isn't it? So in short, this is what Mark is bringing us to at the end of Mark's gospel, at the end of his gospel, that the word gospel, you know the word gospel, remember, it means good news that changes everything. And so this is what Mark has demonstrated. Jesus is this good news. He's come to earth. This is God in the flesh, and he's proven that over and over and over again, and he's risen from the dead, and now he invites you and me into this same journey. And if we would let him, he would change our lives as well. That those who overcome their fear and believe in him will experience a revolution in their lives. They will be changed, forever changed. See, there's one thing that Mark, is one consistent theme throughout the whole gospel of Mark that we've mentioned it, we've mentioned over and over again, and that's this, that you can't meet Jesus and stay the same. It's impossible. If that's one thing that Mark has shown us, it's that. You can't meet Jesus and stay the same. You either love him with everything you have, or you hate him with everything you have, but you're not indifferent about him. Mark's demonstrated that over and over and over again. See? So so here, let me bring it like this to us. If you're here and you've been calling yourself a Christian for one year, 10 years, 50 years, doesn't really matter how long, and your life is still essentially the same as it was, you found religion, you didn't find Jesus. Being a Christian does not mean you're a good person who goes to church and follows Jesus. Being a Christian means you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were on your way to hell. And God loved you so much that he stepped into your life in order to pay the price for your sin, in order to to forgive you so that your life might be his And God is at work changing you. He is determined. Romans chapter 8, he is predestined to conform you to the image of Christ. Like, do you understand that God is determined to make you just like Jesus? it, it, It is his expressed intention and goal for each one of our lives. And so it's absolutely impossible for a person to be a Christian for any number of years and essentially stay the same person. Impossible. Then you didn't meet Jesus, you met religion. And what I want to introduce you to this morning is Jesus. And my prayer is like Paul's prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you that we might see you. And that's my prayer for us today. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.